I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Capehart. Susan Rice has been the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations and the National Security Advisor both to President Barack Obama. On Friday, May 26th, Susan Rice ends another impressive stint in public service, this time as the Director of the Domestic Policy Council under President Biden, the first person to ever have held both positions. In this conversation, first recorded for Washington Post Live on May 24th, Ambassador Rice talks about her accomplishments, how her work in national security helped her on the domestic policy front, and her biggest regret. I wish that we had been able to uh, achieve uh, the enactment of voting rights legislation, for mm. example, and, and pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. I think this is your your third your third time on on my podcast. So thank you very much um, for coming on so many times. Um, let's deal with um, something serious, and this is part of your portfolio as a member of the as as the director of the Domestic Policy Council. May twenty fourth is the one year anniversary of the mass shooting at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas. Um, in response to that and the mass shooting 10 days earlier in Buffalo, New York at that at the grocery store, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act passed a month later. And it's the most significant piece of gun legislation in 30 years. What is this law meant to accomplish? Well, Jonathan, as you said, it is the most meaningful gun safety reform legislation uh, that we've had uh, in almost three decades. It does several things. Uh, first of all, it uh, provides unprecedented resources to uh, communities, to schools, uh, and support for mental health. Uh, it makes it, uh, it imposes greater uh, conditions on background checks for uh, young people under the age of 21 who uh, may be seeking um, to purchase a weapon. Um, it invests in community violence intervention programs, which are very uh, effective efforts to reduce violence on our streets and at the community level by using uh, trusted messengers who can diffuse conflict and, uh, and support community reconciliation. Um, it also uh, provides uh, uh, the, a vehicle for um, an executive order that the president issued uh, in the month of March this year, which will enable through executive action the broadest expansion of background checks uh, allowable uh, without new legislation. So there are many ways in which the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act is, is a meaningful piece of legislation. But the reality is, Jonathan, uh, it's not enough. And as you can see from what's happening uh, in our uh, communities every day, uh, we're reminded of just this month of the horrific tragedy uh, in Buffalo, as you mentioned, and then uh, today is the anniversary uh, of the shootings in Uvalde, uh, where we lost 21 souls. So what is still needed is for the Congress uh, to fulfill the remainder of its responsibility, which is quite considerable. President Biden has done uh, more than any president to date uh, to uh, Im improve gun safety um, and take executive action. He's reined in ghost guns and stabilizing arm braces, which turn pistols uh, into rifles. He's put strike forces uh, in place to try to disrupt the flow of guns from uh, various communities into our, uh, our cities. Um, he's cracked down on rogue gun dealers. But at the end of the day, we still need Congress 
to reinstitute an assault weapons ban, a ban on high capacity magazines, to implement national red flag laws and safe storage laws, uh, and to ensure that we have universal background checks for all gun sales. Um, so there are many steps that, that Congress can and should take, and that also could be taken at the state uh, level as well, that would meaningfully improve safety in our streets. And the irony here, Jonathan, also, is that the vast majority of American people support common sense gun safety legislation on bipartisan basis. Uh, and so does a majority of gun owners. So the failure uh, of Republicans in Congress to be willing to do more in this space is really out of step with the bulk of the American people. And to put a finer point on it, it was the latest poll I saw was from Fox News that didn't just show a majority of Americans supporting various gun safety um, proposals, but an overwhelming majority. We're talking north of 80% um, majority of Americans supporting common sense gun safety legislation. There's another sad anniversary that we are marking, and that one is tomorrow, May 25th, and it's the third anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. You shepherded an, an executive order that was designed to address issues around policing and race. And you built an improbable coalition of law enforcement leaders, civil rights activists, and, and families of people who'd been killed by police to support it. First, what does the order do? The order does a, a vast number of things, Jonathan, but um, let me back up and give that to you, but also to give our audience the context. Uh, you will recall that um, after George Floyd's horrific murder, um, there was work in Congress on something called the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. It passed the House of Representatives in 2021 with President Biden's very strong support. Um, but it stalled in the Senate largely because, uh, again, unfortunately, Republicans were not interested in, in seeing that legislation enacted. That legislation would have banned, you know, chokeholds, no-knock warrants, mandated body cameras, changed the uh, and, and restricted the use of force um, and implemented a number of very important and common sense reforms, not only at the federal level, but at the state and local level. Now, without legislation, President Biden has the ability only to mandate those sorts of reforms at the federal level. So the executive order, which the president signed a year ago tomorrow, um, mandated that the federal government also ban all chokeholds, uh, revise and, and restrict the use of force and, and implement policies across all the federal agencies to ensure that we do that, restrict no-knock warrants, mandate the use of, of body cameras, ensure that there is a federal law enforcement accountability database so that when there is police misconduct, uh, that it is uh, available for law enforcement agencies to check and make sure they're not hiring somebody from another um, uh, agency or, or locality that has a known record of misconduct. There are so many things that this order does from improving our data collection to improving the, the uh, standards of training, helping uh, officers who have uh, wellness issues and, and suffering uh, the stresses of the job achieve the support that they need, helping our communities recover um, from the stress of um, of, of gun violence, as well as um, of interactions that have been so um, counterproductive in many cases with uh, uh, police. And so what was remarkable about the executive order is that it really was 
um, a product of a collaboration um, and a coming together of civil rights groups, very importantly, the families of victims um, of, of police brutality and law enforcement themselves. Uh, many, many law enforcement organizations partnered uh, with the, uh, all of those groups and with us to help to craft this executive order in a manner that garnered, garnered broad support across that spectrum. Um, and tomorrow, uh, we will be releasing a detailed update on how we are implementing that executive order. Um, we've been hard at work over the last year, making sure that we are meeting as many of the, the deadlines and requirements of that order as we possibly can, and, and we will report on our progress tomorrow. And, and tomorrow being, being Thursday, May 25th. Another element of your extensive portfolio has been to infuse racial equity and justice within federal agencies. How does how do you go about achieving that? Is it something, how does it look in practice versus um, the effort that it takes to actually get it done? How much intention, intentionality has to be a part of achieving those goals? Well, a great deal. Uh, so let, let me back up and explain. Um, on President Biden's first day in office, he signed a historic executive order um, infusing equity uh, in, in everything that the federal government does. What, what do we mean by that? We mean by enabling underserved communities, whether they are communities of color, uh, rural communities, um, LGBTQ plus communities, um, disabled communities, uh, people who have been underserved to have their perspectives and needs addressed by federal programs and policies. And so for everything we do, whether it's how we collect data, how we devise our budgets, how we structure our programs. We wanna make sure that we're getting to those people who may otherwise have been left behind and have historically been left behind. Um, and you know, some people misunderstand equity to be solely about race. That's not accurate. It's about helping all sorts of people and communities that have not fully benefited from uh, the uh, tools and, and the support of the federal government to be able to access that support. So. We're doing much more in terms of consulting with those communities about their needs. When we think about um, putting together um, the president's budget or new program uh, and policy initiatives, we're trying to ask ourselves, are we designing these things in a way that gets to the needs of, of those who may have been left behind? So to give you a couple of examples, um, the bipartisan infrastructure law um, that uh, was, a, as I said, bipartisan law signed by the president uh, investing uh, hundreds of billions of dollars in improving infrastructure had elements in it like ensuring that there is broadband access in every household and every community across the country in an affordable way so that kids don't have to go sit in McDonald's parking lots uh, in a rural area or in a, uh, a an internet desert in an urban area um, to be able to do their homework. So as we implement that bipartisan infrastructure law, we're being very intentional about making sure that the resources go everywhere and to particularly to those places where um, that have been historically underserved. Another example in that same legislation is, you know, this law should ensure that we are able to remove lead pipes and lead service lines, you know, so we don't have more Flint, Michigans um, and, um, and, and challenges like we see in, in Jackson, Mississippi. We want to be sure that as we do uh, what we are able to do with the resources we have, that we're doing it intentionally in a way that benefits everybody. Mm -hmm. you know, you're the first person 
to be to have been uh, a domestic policy advisor to the president of the United States uh, and a national security advisor to the president of the United States. And so I want to get your perspective on on this particular pressing issue. Now, I know you're not involved in the debt ceiling negotiations. Otherwise, you wouldn't be sitting here <laughs> right, now, right now talking to me. But I, I want to tap into your foreign policy and national security experience here, because I'm just wondering, what does this degree of brinksmanship over the full faith and credit of the United States have on America's standing in the world? Well, Jonathan, if the United States uh, were to default on its debt for the first time in our history, it would have extraordinary ramifications and implications for not only our standing in the world, but the global economy. In the domestic level, millions of jobs will be lost. Uh, you know, re retirement uh, savings would be devastated. Um, th there will be, you know, a recession of significant uh, and, and damaging proportions. Um, the cost of borrowing will go way up. But internationally, people will look at the United States and say, you know, not only have you acted in a self-inflicted way to damage everybody else's economy in the world, but how can we look to you for leadership? Um, whether it's vis-a-vis -vis Russia uh, and, and Ukraine uh, and our competition with China, it would be absolutely devastating. Uh, and that is why um, President Biden has been so clear and, and, and Speaker McCarthy has also affirmed that default can't be on the table. We have got to uh, find a way through this. And, and it is inconceivable uh, from the perspective of our standing in the world, the power that we have, the, the, the challenges that we face on the international stage, that we would uh, put ourselves in a position of, in effect, uh, taking ourselves off the, off the global stage in any meaningful way. And that damage, Jonathan, would not be short-lived. It would be long-lasting. You know, again, keeping your national security hat on, you know, how concerned should the United States be that those other nations, nations around the world are, world are looking at the brinksmanship here and decide, might decide, you know what, maybe the dollar isn't the best currency for us to, you know, put all, all of our future and our financial systems have it based on that. Maybe we should look uh, to the Chinese. Maybe we should look elsewhere and make those currencies our reserve currency. Well, first of all, uh, I do not expect that we will be facing uh, a default. That is, is not something that I find conceivable. Um, okay. It would only be in that context that I think the, the concern that you raise um, might come to the fore. Uh, I don't know, on any day of the year, um, I would put my money in US treasuries and US dollars uh, ahead of any other currency, um, and in particularly the Chinese uh, yuan. So I, I, I don't... Um, I don't foresee that just as a consequence of, of um, the, the negotiations that are ongoing and the fact that, that we're, we're still um, not yet at resolution. But should there be a default, uh, and, and again, I find that inconceivable, um, then the risk of, of uh, consequences like that over the long term can't be discounted. Mm -hmm. So how does a foreign policy expert like yourself because that's where you started in the Clinton administration. Correct me if I'm wrong, State Department um, head of the Africa Bureau? Yes. 
right? Actually, I started um, my career. I started my career here at the White House at the National Security Council at the ripe age of 28 uh, as a National Security Council staffer. And then in President Clinton's second term, I served as the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs. So then how does someone with the extensive foreign policy background and credentials um, that you have switch to domestic policy? What was that phone call like that you had? I think it was with uh, uh, Ron Klain, now the former chief of staff, when he called you and said, hey, Madam Madam Ambassador, former U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., how would you like to turn your attention to domestic policy? Well, first of all, I, it was a, a really exciting and, and welcome uh, new challenge for me. Uh, the, the fact is, Jonathan, before I um, got into foreign policy uh, in my uh, mid-late 20s, um, most of the stuff that I'd been interested in and that I'd been focused on really had been domestic. I worked on domestic violence issues. I worked on racial justice issues. Um, I worked on poverty issues. Um, and that was sort of where I began. And then it was really when I went to graduate school that I thought, okay, let me study international relations because I had expected I was going to go on to law school and be some kind of uh, public interest advocate or uh, you know social uh, policy advocate. Um, that I thought I'd study international affairs and just you know broaden myself. Well, I got uh, hooked on it, and I never really I never went to law school. I got my PhD in international relations instead, and I never worked really in domestic policy, even though that's in many ways where I began. And so this opportunity came along and I was really excited to, to learn new stuff and apply the experiences and the skills um, and the tools that I learned with almost 30 years of working in national security policy to domestic policy. On the national security side, we have a very established uh, process and apparatus for how we make decisions. And you know it flows from the National Security Act of, of 1947. Um, we have very set structures of cabinet level uh, decision-making meetings, sub-cabinet level decision-making meetings, paper processes as we you know tee up decisions for the president, very rigorous implementation. I was, having lived that for so many years, able to bring that sort of structure and rigor of the policy-making process and some of the tools that we have used successfully on the national security side to our domestic policy making. Um, and that's proved very um, helpful and enabled us to, to, to fire on multiple cylinders and, and to get many things done simultaneously. So I feel like I'm using very much the same muscles uh, that I was accustomed to using as national security advisor, for example. I'm just applying it uh, to mm -hmm. a new set of issues. And for me, that's exciting because it's been a great learning opportunity. I've gotten very engaged and, and excited about all of the domestic policy issues that I'm working on. Um, and at this stage in my career, uh, in many ways, that's more energizing and refreshing than coming back to uh, some of the same um, historic and intractable challenges that I worked on for decades before. Now you're making okay. me feel really old. <laughs> <laughs> One thing you didn't point out um, in, you know, you didn't go to, you didn't, you decided not to go to law school. You write in your book, Tough Love, that the thing you really wanted to do when you were growing up um, was to be a U.S. senator. And so, you know, there's still time. There, there, there's still time for that. The other thing, am I to take it um, by your, your talk about the 
processes and structures that you were used to um, on the national security side. Was the domestic policy side so chaotic that you were like, hold up, we need to, <laughs> we need to put some scaffolding and some frames around this or we're not going to get anywhere? Well, it, it, obviously, every administration is different. Um, you know, I, what I inherited from the prior administration did not seem to me to be that uh, structured and, and disciplined. I think uh, in the Obama and the Clinton administrations, which, which I was uh, privileged to work in, there were such structures and there was um, a process, but it's never been quite um, the same uh, degree of, um, of rigor and, uh, and precision that we um, have had historically on the national security side. So I tried to bring what I know new works in policymaking from my uh, years on national security to domestic policymaking. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that at least in this context, in, in this administration, uh, it's worked uh, and it's, it's helped us to, uh, to get um, a good bit of work done for the American people. And of course, President Biden, having been vice president, having sat every day at the national security decision-making table before he came uh, to the presidency, understood those processes. And I think thought that it would be worthwhile for somebody like me to be able to bring some um, of that uh, experience from the national security side to domestic policy making. Mm -hmm. And I'm grateful that he had the trust and confidence in me to, uh, to let me take on a, a whole new domain. So Ambassador Rice, some rapid fire questions. Your proudest moment as chief domestic policy advisor? Tough one. Um, I would say one of the issues we already talked about, quite frankly, which was um, bringing together uh, civil rights groups, police, families uh, to uh, accomplish historic policing EO. I'm also really proud of all the work that we've done on healthcare to bring 9 million more Americans uh, onto uh, health insurance that didn't have it at the start of this administration, lower their costs. And I'm really also proud of the work we've done to try to tackle the mental health crisis, which has got to be a critical ongoing piece of effort. Mm -hmm. um, your biggest regret, is there something that you, you, you didn't accomplish that you wish you had in the time, the, the time that you had, which is longer than you told the president you'd be there? Well, again, not, not just a personal regret. I, I, I wish that we had been able to uh, achieve uh, the enactment of voting rights legislation, for mm. example, and, and pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Uh, and I wish that some of the elements of the uh, president's Build Back Better agenda, particularly as they relate to care, um, child care, home care, um, paid leave, um, would have been able to, to have been enacted legislatively. But all of these things and, and, and the work we're, that, that still needs to be done on guns are ongoing um, priorities that, that none of us would give up on. Um, um broaden the aperture a bit here, especially given what you said about um, your your work on racial justice and social justice before you went into the foreign policy realm. I'm just wondering, what do you make of the nationwide effort to erase parts of American history, particularly the contributions of African-Americans and our experiences in this country, in our country? Yes, in our country. It's outrageous, Jonathan. Uh, and you know this effort to try to uh, erase 
um, whole segments of society from our history, uh, whether they're African Americans or Latinos or Jewish Americans uh, or LGBTQ plus Americans. It's um, it's pernicious. Uh, it's designed to divide. It's designed to undermine uh, our national cohesion um, and our um, ability to remain a, a, a functioning, vibrant democracy. And it can't be allowed to stand. It's it's really, truly um, uh, an, an effort to tear us apart. Um, mm -hmm. We need to be uh, a nation that's proud of our history. Um, there is a great deal to be proud of. There are things, there are chapters that are painful and, and, and difficult. We've got to acknowledge and reckon with those. That's what a great nation does. We learn from our history. We learn from our successes. We learn from our failures and we get better and better. And those who are afraid to allow our children to learn the truth are not, a, they have no interest in, in, in the well-being and, and, and growth and development of the next generation. And I question their commitment to um, the national enterprise of, of democracy and one nation indivisible. You know, and the, and the greatness of our nation can be seen in just in your own family history, which you write about uh, in your book, detailing from whence your people came to right through to where you are right now. Um, it's been reported that you don't want to be the next president of the Brookings institutions. Um, Okay, you're saying no. All right, that's a confirmation. No, I'm just that's saying this is, it, it's been reported. This is urban legend. Um, oh. But anyway, I, I, I am, okay. I, I, I love the Brookings Institution. I was honored to serve there as a scholar. My mother was a scholar there. Right. Um, but I have not had any in-depth or serious conversations about uh, being the president of Brookings. And, and for me, uh, my only certainty is that I want to take some time away, uh, enjoy my family, travel have a great summer, um, and then maybe in the fall, I'll be willing to think about what I wanna do next. Oh, okay, because that's where that question was going. So what is the, what would be the next, the perfect next gig? I have no idea. And that's what's <laughs> so exciting about this next chapter. I, not only do I not know, I'm not trying to figure it out right away. I really oh. wanna just take some time, uh, decompress, I served Jonathan eight years of the Clinton administration, eight years of the Obama administration, two and a half years in this administration, which has been an extraordinary privilege uh, with a, an extraordinary team at the Domestic Policy Council. I've loved every minute of it. I've loved serving President Biden and getting to serve our country again. But I'm looking forward to some time uh, with family, friends, and just sort of thinking about, you know, at this stage of my life and my career, what does make sense next? And, and I'm not trying to answer that question anytime soon. Okay, well then I've got one last question for you. It is the most important question um, because in, in, in your book, uh, In Tough Love, you write about your love of a good dance party. So how soon after you leave the White House will you have a dance party? Well, first of all, I'm having one before I leave the White House. Uh, <laughs> um, We'll have a we'll have a little going away uh, before I leave, and and like all my parties, there's going to have to be some music, and I will be uh, very surprised if that doesn't lead to some righteous dancing. Um, and then afterwards, <laughs> uh, you know, we'll talk about uh, what comes next. But 
I will have more time to plan parties than I currently do. That's the good news. You know, one of my favorite pictures of you is, I think it's like a New Year's Eve. Um, it's you in the center, Ben Chang and his wife on the turntables, because he was the DJ, and you are rocking out. Ambassador Susan Rice, outgoing director of the Domestic Policy Council, thank you so much for coming back to Capehart. Congratulations on your tenure. Good luck. And thank you for coming to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It's great to be back. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's edited by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Thursday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Capehart J.